pray for God's blessing on His Word. Lord, we do praise You. We are part of the nations that You have drawn in to Yourself, that You have made Your people, and we bow before You and praise You today. We do ask that You would give us submissive hearts to Your will, so that as we come to Your Word today, that we have a mind that is desirous of being taught so that we would live our lives for the glory of Jesus, your great Son, who is our Savior. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture lesson today comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. You'll find that on page 978 of the Pew Bible. Continuing in this section where Paul is talking about the holiness of the church And today, in particular, he wants to tell us about walking carefully. Paul writes here, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm sure most, if not all of you, are familiar with the poem, Footprints. And for some of you, you might have a real affection for it. Maybe you have it up in Broadway somewhere or on a calendar someplace in your house. Uh, and I, I don't want to burst your bubble a bit uh, or uh, discourage you, but it's a slightly uh, misleading poem. It's a poem that speaks of how someone is walking with the Lord on the beach and when they look back over the course of their life, they see two footprints But then when trouble comes, they only see one footprint and they begin to question God. Lord, where were you when I went through times of trouble? And the Lord responds by saying, I was right there because I was the one carrying you. And there's certainly some truth in that for sure. But I think the way in which the Bible speaks of the Christian life as a walk with God is that as he said in verse 1 of chapter 5, we're to be imitators of God. Therefore, if we are to think about footprints in the sand, it's more along the lines of God himself, Jesus in particular, has walked the path of faithfulness for us. And what he declares to us is, now walk in my steps. There ought to only be one set of footprints because I'm following so closely to Jesus. Walking in his steps each and every way. That is to how the children of God are supposed to follow Christ. He says, follow me. And he doesn't mean follow at a distance. He doesn't mean follow over there, but maybe you can still see me. He means follow closely and walk in my steps each and every way. And he tells us why here in this passage that's so important. Verse 15 says, look carefully then, how you walk, not as wise, unwise, but as wise. We are to walk carefully, he says. Because life, after all, is not a stroll on the beach. 
There are surprises that come along. There are hardships that come our way. There are temptations. There are distractions to the Christian life. There are dangers that we can fall into. And so he says, walk carefully. Why? It goes on to say in verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The days are evil. Now that's not just doom and gloom from the Apostle Paul that the days in which we live are evil. He's actually being very specific about what he's saying. He's talking not so much uh, about... uh, Uh, simply the morality of things, but also the stage in which we live in world history. The days are still evil because although the kingdom has been inaugurated, it hasn't yet been consummated. Christ has not returned to restore all things. And therefore, the times in which we live are the days in which sin is still rampant in the world. And because of that, there are dangers. And we must be those who walk carefully, as Paul says in Galatians, in this present evil age. Paul has already told us earlier in chapter 2 that those who live in this world, who are not believers, follow the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so there is a sense in which the evil powers of the forces of darkness are still running rampant in our world. And because of that, there are great dangers. They wreak havoc. And Paul wants us to be alert, as he'll go on to say, for the schemes of the devil, who would seek to sidetrack our faith and make us the target of the enemy. Friends, the Christian life is filled with joy. The Christian life is filled with purpose and meaning. But this Christian life is serious business as well. It is serious business Because if we are not careful, then we will fall into the hands of these evil days and be tempted and lured and taken astray. Some people, actually, the way in which they view their lives is as if they're a part-time Christian. That, yes, I go to church on Sundays and maybe I do something else during the week, but I haven't yet given my life over to the Lordship of Jesus so that I'm walking closely with Him. Because I'm being careful not to stray from Him. And when He speaks of His Lordship over our life, He means every bit of our lives. Everything. From our families all the way down to our free time. From the way in which we do our jobs. To the way in which we engage in recreation. Everything is lived under the Lordship of Jesus. And every part of our lives ought to be walking closely in step with Jesus. But if we're not living every minute of every day as imitators of God, then we need to take care that we do and consider how Jesus wants us to live at every moment of every day. And he gives us some instruction here through the Apostle Paul about how we ought to live carefully for him. The first is this, using our time wisely using our time wisely. Now, he references wisdom here on a couple of occasions. Verse 15, we live not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, he says. So we're to live wisely. Wisdom is basically the ability to take the truth of God's Word and then apply it to every aspect of life. 
It requires vision so that we see life and ourselves appropriately. It also uh, includes being able to evaluate our circumstances according to the Word of God. And then it takes skill to plan and map out and to implement just what we're going to do to be able to go down the right path and live for the glory of God. And Paul has actually given us an example of this kind of wisdom in the book. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of how God has reconciled people not only to Himself, but to one another in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on in chapter 3 to say this, that through the church where God is putting together people from every tribe and tongue from all around the world, he says, in the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, what God has deemed as wise is the crucifixion of His own Son for the right goal of gathering together worshipers in the Lord Jesus from all over the place who come from different backgrounds, who have different opinions, who have different personalities and put them all in one church so that we begin to live in peace under the gracious reign of God. And he says, now that's wisdom. Knowing the right goal and the right means to accomplish that goal. And so we're to live here and walk in wisdom, he says. And that wisdom is evidenced by the way in which we use our time. He says here, wisdom is displayed in verse 16 by making the best use of our time. Literally what it means is redeeming our time or buying back our time. Redemption always comes with a price. And the redemption of God's people came with the price of the life of the Son of God. And for us, if we're going to use our time wisely, will actually cost us something if we're going to redeem it, if we're going to buy it back from the one who would use it for evil purposes in rebellion against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if we're going to buy it back, it will come with a cost. It might be the cost of our agenda that has been sort of set by the world and we don't even realize it. It might be the cost of the comforts that we have grown accustomed to in life. I've I've set up my own pattern of life and it's very comfortable to me. And then all of a sudden the Word of God comes along and says, now wait a minute, that's not how you live wisely. And maybe I have to give up my comfortable pattern in life. Or it might be that at work you have to pay the cost of ridicule when you're using your time wisely and effectively for your labors. And it begins to expose the darkness, as Paul said a few verses before this, so that other workers feel like, now wait a minute, he's showing me up, or she is displaying a work ethic that I am not, and my boss may not be happy with me. And in that, we have to pay the cost of ridicule by other people. But whatever it is, Paul says, if you're going to use your time wisely, then you have to redeem it. You have to buy it back from the evil one. And you have to pay the cost to use it for right purposes. Now there's only a finite number of minutes in every day. And there's no way in which you can stretch it out to give you more. No one can change that. And so Paul says here that the wise person knows how to use his or her time to accomplish the greatest good for the kingdom of God. We all know what it's like to waste time. 
you have a project to do, but you find yourself doing other things because you don't want to really give yourself to the work of the project. We know what it's like to waste time, and we, we wish that we could have that time back for ourselves. Maybe if I, if I just had those few hours back or those few days back, I really could have done something great. And Paul says here, we need to use that time wisely so that we don't waste it. And I think there are two things that we need to consider if we're going to make every moment count for the Lord. The first is our priorities. What are our priorities? Or you might say our, our fixed commitments, anchor points in our lives that we say we're not going to compromise on these things. I will not get rid of these things from my life. And you might sort of categorize those things in terms of at least first priorities. Things for all seasons of life. Things like our relationship with the Lord. Our jobs. Our families. The church that Jesus has called us to. These are things of first priority regardless of the season of life. Things that we ought to have nailed down. I'm committed here. God has called me here. And I will not compromise. And then there are second tier commitments. Things that do change with the seasons of life. For me, being engaged in our children's sports or extracurricular activities. For some of you, it might be commitments to outside community organizations. In other words, things that sort of change with the seasons. But unfortunately, what ends up happening in our lives a lot of time is that we flip that. And as we invert it, our second priorities become our first priorities. And sometimes we begin to compromise what our first priorities ought to be. And we get them out of sorts by losing sight of our primary callings. Now one thing that we can all be sure of, if we don't set our agenda and decide today what our first priorities are, someone will actually decide for us. Right? There's always an emergency there's always a need that comes along. There's always something that sounds a little bit more exciting to do. And before long, something else has set our agenda for us rather than the agenda that God has for us in His Word. This is the way in which the Lord Jesus lived His life. In John chapter 7, we have an example of the way in which Jesus used His time wisely. You see, all the disciples wanted Jesus to go up to Jerusalem, to Judea, for one of the feasts of the Feast of Booths. And they were telling him, you know, Jesus, your brothers aren't believing in you. There are people around here who doubt you. So what you need to do is you need to go up to the feast and you need to perform some miracles and show everybody you're the real deal. And Jesus responded by saying, Brothers, it's not yet my time. You go up to the feast. Jesus knew his priorities. He knew what is first in line. And that is, he had a mission from his heavenly Father. And so he was able to wisely set aside his priority or, or set aside time to live out his priorities in life. And we are called to do the same thing. Second thing is this, not just our priorities, but our preparations for those priorities. Once we have our firmed, fixed commitments from the Word of God, what are we doing to prepare for those things? I think we oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves and one another, are ill-prepared for the things that come to us in life. We can be ill-prepared for worship. 
We can be ill-prepared for witnessing to the Lord Jesus. We can be ill-prepared to take our children to school. We can be ill-prepared to answer the questions our children ask us. We can be ill-prepared for college, whether it's mentally, whether it's financially, or whether it's spiritually. And people shipwreck their faith during their time in college because they're not prepared for it. Maybe we're not prepared for retirement. We're not prepared for the tests of faith that come our way or how we spend our money. And we're ill prepared to say no when something comes along that would take us away from our first priorities in life. And Paul says here we need to use our time wisely and we need to do that by preparing for everything. If we take worship as an example, this is one of the key things in life we ought to prepare ourselves for. It ought to be part of our regular weekly pattern, not just the 30-second moment of meditation before the worship service starts, not even just the morning of worship, but Saturday night itself, even during the week preparing ourselves, that we might be as best prepared as we possibly can to come into our Lord's presence, to praise Him and adore Him, and to give our best to Him as much as we possibly can. So that physically we're ready. And so that spiritually we're ready. Maybe that means that we do everything that we can so that there's no distraction so that when we get to the service, you might say we're ready to eat. Ready to eat. You know what it's like to get ready for a meal. You make all your preparations so that when you sit down, everybody's ready. And you can dig in and be nourished. The same is true here. As the Word of God is fed to His people, we ought to all come ready. Ready with our utensils in hand. Ready to dig in and receive all that God has for us. Because we've made good preparations so that we can receive Jesus in the ways in which He presents Himself to us in the Word. Friends, there are pressures and there are varied opportunities today that make all of this important of how we use our time. One word you might say that you could attach to the Christian life is the word intentional. Because to use our time wisely is to be intentional in the way in which we live our lives. Because unless we're careful to redeem the time, then unknowingly it is actually used by the forces of darkness and by the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ for purposes that are contrary to His will. And that leads us to the second thing here. Not only using our time well, but understanding the will of the Lord. He says here in verse 17, if we're to be careful in how we walk, he says, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now the fool is the one in the Word of God that says there is no God. But the wise person is the one who lives his or her life under the Word of God, in submission to God, understanding the will of God, wanting to live out the purposes of our Maker and our Savior. The foolish person goes throughout life mindlessly, not even thinking and considering what is right and good. But the Christian here is the one who has understanding. He knows God's will, and he knows what is best. Discerning the will of God is something that causes great anxiety for all of us at some point in life. 
decisions about where we're to go. Decisions about what kind of job we ought to have. Decisions about how we ought to invest our money. Decisions about way in which God might use us in the church. There's decision after decision after decision. And sometimes we feel as though we're up to here with a sense of anxiety and pressure about making the right decision. And because of that, actually some pagan ideas have crept into the church about how God leads us. As though He were to lead us by writing it in the sky or giving us signs in the world. But actually, we need to understand that God presents His will to us in a very specific way. Because He declares to us there are two ways we ought to view the will of God. One is the secret will of God. His purposes and His plans for every person and for everything in the world. And secondly, what He calls His revealed will, that is the Scriptures of what He says is good and right and wise for the people of God. And here's what He says about the relationship between those two things. This is Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of His law. In other words, we're often enamored with trying to figure out God's secret will. God, what do you want me to do here? And what God says is, I'll never tell you that ahead of time. That's for me. Those are my purposes. And I'm the only one who is Lord and Master of those things. But what He does tell us is that the revealed things, the things that we find here in the Scriptures, this is for us and for our children that we might do everything in it. And the wise person is the person who understands the will of God in such a way that their mind is so saturated with the Scriptures that they begin to live out of biblical instincts in life, putting into practice as many varied principles as the Word of God presents to us. Is this not how Jesus lived His life? We're told as a child He grew in wisdom. And we see Him living out that wisdom as He takes the principles of Scripture and applies them to every situation. Think of when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. What did He do? He turned back to the Scriptures. And the Scriptures were His guide. Or what about when He was asked about paying taxes to Caesar? People came to Him to test Him that way. What will He say? No matter what He says, we'll trap Him. Instead, Jesus applied the principles of Scripture and said, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's and pay to God what is God's. Or you might think of other situations of how He spent His time, like we already mentioned from John chapter 7, saying, my time has not yet come. You see what Jesus did in living out wisdom? He's simply taking all the truth of Scripture his mind and his heart is so filled with it. Yes, there is often a struggle to make a decision, but at least we have all that we truly need in the Scriptures to make a good and wise decision for the Lord. And as we seek to understand God's will during a particular period of life, it's important to be patient. Because one of the things that we need to understand is that God may not have yet brought the providences in our view that will give us understanding about what to do next. We may need to wait a while. 
until He brings various people, various events into our lives, various resources and opportunities so that now we have a clearer picture and the truth of Scripture can be applied to those things. And now I can make a good and wise decision. So sometimes we need to wait on the Lord and be patient as He directs our path, seeking to understand the will of the Lord. One of the things that we need to do to grow to understand the will of the Lord and how to live out wisdom is not only to learn it from the Scriptures, but one other point of information, something that you could do is actually to read about Christians who have walked with God well. If you've never read a biography of someone who has lived the Christian life well, who has been faithful in every way, or at least sought to make their life faithful to the Lord, then you have really robbed yourself of an opportunity to see wisdom displayed, to see the principles of Scripture lived out. And I would very much encourage you, take that opportunity. Because you will see people who make mistakes and learn from them. And you will see people who have wisdom beyond our wisdom, who understand the Scriptures better than us and they put things into practice. And then I can say, oh, now that's how you do it. So let me encourage you as you think about growing in wisdom, not only read the Scriptures, but read about faithful Christians in the Scriptures and read about faithful Christians in their autobiographies and biographies so that we would learn here's what it looks like to live faithfully before the Lord. And if you walk carefully, you'll understand the will of the Lord. Some of us may feel like I I haven't walked carefully and I've really made a mess of things. I haven't navigated my life well. Let me just say this. Every day is a new day with the Lord. And there's the opportunity for grace to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I have made a mess of things. I haven't navigated my life well. I haven't sought Your Word for decision-making purposes. I haven't used my time well. And there's forgiveness. And there is mercy. And not only that, there's the opportunity to go the opposite direction. To begin to grow in grace and grow in the Word of God and learn now how to live the Christian life. And so let me urge you and encourage you to live your life in wisdom, using your time well and understanding the will of the Lord. And then lastly this. He says if we're going to be careful in how we walk, We need to be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. He says in verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So we have two commands here. Do not get drunk with wine, and do be filled with the Spirit. Again, the putting off and the putting on. So that we're not just putting a sinful act off, but it's being replaced By the Lord Himself being filled with the Spirit. Now he doesn't say here, do not drink alcohol. That's not what he says. But rather he says, do not get drunk with wine. Now why does he say do not get drunk with wine? Because when we're drunk with, whether it's alcohol or drugs or anything else, then we're actually under the control of something other than God. Our lives are out of control 
you might say. We're under the influence so that our, our faculties are impaired, our, our judgments impaired, so that we're not able to live in a balanced fashion, so that we don't know what our priorities really are and how to keep those priorities. Alcohol is a depressant. And so it suppresses our judgment and our understanding. And for some reason, that's actually, or for some people, that's actually why they drink. Because it's a depressant. It dulls the pain and the struggles of having to cope with this life. And instead, let something else be in charge. And in that, it has become a replacement for the Lord Himself. A form of idolatry. Worshipping something in the creation. And look how Paul describes it. He says, that is debauchery. In other words, it's excessive indulgence in something other than the Lord that would allow us to leave a, live an uncontrolled and a reckless, destructive life. It becomes the reigning force. It becomes the driving power in our lives so that now we are under the influence of something other than the Lord Himself. But the Spirit-filled life looks altogether different. It actually looks like self-control, doesn't it? It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control. So that when we're filled with the Spirit, we're now under His control and leading so that ourselves are under control. The right kind of control. The right kind of authority. And the right kind of power. So that now, what once dehumanized us, that distorted our lives and made us into something other than true humanity, now our lives are becoming straightened out so that we are living out what true humanity is supposed to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Friends, we can't walk carefully in the Christian life unless we're walking under the control and the leading and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul commands us here, be filled with the Spirit. And he gives some expressions of what that looks like in life. Four things in particular. He says in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. And goes on in verse 19 to say, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Here's part of the Spirit-filled life. It's in the context of corporate worship where we're engaged in a variety of different musical expressions, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And what's most interesting here is not, not the types of music, which is what oftentimes people get stuck on, but it's actually, to whom are we singing? Addressing one another with these things. That sounds a bit out of place, doesn't it? We often are very keen on keeping the fact that God is the one who is central in worship. And yet here Paul is saying, in worship, if we're living the Spirit-filled life, we're addressing one another in worship. Because we want to build each other up and encourage one another. In fact, some of the Psalms themselves instruct us to do just this. Last week, we sang Psalm 95 that says, O come and to Jehovah sing, let us our voices raise. In joyful songs, let the rock of our salvation praise. That's not addressed to God. That's addressed to the people of God. Come, let us praise the Lord. We've already sung it ourselves earlier. Our very first hymn that we opened with. Come people of the risen King who delight to bring Him praise. We're addressing one another. 
Because the Spirit would have us do that. To lift each other up so that we look upon Jesus and praise Him as the great object of our salvation. Friends, that's the point of even having, whether it's the children come up and sing here or the adult choir back there. It's not a performance. It's rather them addressing us in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs so that we're built up in Jesus and pointed to Him in faith. And that means that worship's not about me. It's not about me and God and my personal experience. It's why corporate worship is so vital because the rest of the congregation needs you and needs me. So that we're together addressing one another and building each other up in Christ. Well, not only are we to address one another, but he also goes on here to say the Spirit-filled life looks like singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. So not only do we address each other, but we address God too, singing and making melody to the Lord. And notice what he says here. It's with all of our heart. Worship is not just perfunctory. It's not just something that we gather together and do. Paul speaks of those people who sit in pews on Sunday morning and they, they engage in worship without engaging their hearts as those who, quote, have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Worship is not just something that we do in a formula, but rather it's the joy of our hearts because we want to praise our Lord and our Savior. We want to be welcomed into His presence and honor and glorify Him. Here is the Spirit-filled heart that longs to worship. And what the Spirit is doing in us is actually provoking us to worship. Because worship is saying, there's something outside of me that's great and glorious. And the Spirit knows that the most great and glorious person in all the universe is the Lord. So what does He do when we're filled with the Spirit? He points us towards our Heavenly Father and towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit Himself worships and leads us to worship so that we bow down before Him with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. Friends, if, if that's never been your experience in worship, then maybe you've just never given your heart to the Lord. Maybe that's what you need to do. Is come to Jesus in faith and say, Lord, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to have my heart and to have your way with me. And if we're going to walk carefully in the Christian life, then that's what we need to do is to be filled with the Spirit so that He has His way with us. Well, thirdly this. He speaks of giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've noticed this, how often we are commanded to come to God in thanksgiving, even just in the book of Ephesians, over and over and over. It's the Spirit-filled life in contrast to the one whose disposition is, is sour and discontented with what they have. And you see the danger of that? If we're sour and discontented, and we go seek what we want for ourselves. And Paul says you need to be filled with the Spirit so that you praise Him and give Him thanks for everything. So that you're able to live carefully 
walking in his ways. And then finally this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Spirit submits to the Son out of reverence. And He causes us to do the same thing. To submit to the Son out of reverence for Christ. Now it could be that Paul is promoting a sense of mutual submission among the people of God. But actually I think because of what he goes on to do in the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, he tells us particular ways in which we ought to submit. He's saying that we ought to submit rightly to the right authorities over our lives. And we'll come to that in the coming weeks. But for now, what we need to understand is to live the Spirit-filled life is to live in submission. And we can't actually have a position of authority and use it rightly until we first learn to submit. Because otherwise, we'll use our power and authority for ourselves rather than for the glory of another. Now, there's two things I want to say about this Spirit-filled life. One, it's often not what we expect. We often think of the Spirit-filled life as an emotional high where all things work out well. But you know yourself that the psalmists who were Spirit-inspired spoke of the hardships, of the doubts of their faith, spoke of the oppressions that came upon them, spoke of the fears of God's judgment. So that's not the spirit-filled life, constant living in an emotional high. But rather, it's often very ordinary and looks humble and like submission. But the second thing is this. It's necessary if we're going to walk carefully in the Christian life. Otherwise, worship becomes devoid of God. Otherwise, worship is simply about me. Otherwise, I don't give thanks to God, but I grumble against Him and I go seek my own things for myself. Or possibly use authority that Jesus has given to me in an unbiblical fashion because I've never learned to submit to His purposes. Paul says, walk carefully. Walk carefully. The days are evil. And if we're going to do that, we must be wise in how we use our time. We must understand the will of the Lord. He says we must be filled with the Spirit that we walk under His power and His control. Otherwise, we fall victim to every danger that could come our way. But if we do this, Paul says, we'll walk down paths of safety and in paths of righteousness. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, such little time to examine so many things that You tell us. Lord, we pray that You would give to us a sense of wanting to walk carefully, closely behind the Lord Jesus, stepping in His steps, walking in His wisdom, using our time the way that He used His time being filled with the Spirit the way in which He was filled with the Spirit so that we would live faithfully before You all of our days. And this we pray in His name. Amen.